Thank you for listening to Audio QT. I'm your host, Karma Chavez. And on today's episode, we're going to listen to an interview that I conducted in December 2021 for World AIDS Day with uh, local activist uh, Maria Limon. And it was something for a World AIDS Day event that I did related to my book. There were other parts of it. What you're going to hear is simply the interview I did. And so the beginning and ending might feel a little bit weird because it was originally done before a live audience. Uh, But I hope you enjoy. Thank you. So when I was trying to figure out what the hell this book was about, I was on Instagram. And there's this Instagram, what do you call them, account called Barrio Archive. ATX, I think, and Alan Garcia has it. And he had like some images from this group called Informecida that was a project of Algo in the 80s and was talking all about this person named Maria Limon. And I was like, oh my God, who is this? Like, what is this? I was like, this is the most amazing thing. So I find this person, I like probably, you know, stalker, caller figure, like, will you talk to me? And so I end up having a few conversations. Those conversations don't end up in the book. They will end up in something. But I've been so compelled by Maria's work that when I thought about what would a book launch be, what would I want to do to launch my book, it would be one, to feature the art of amazing poets, be in a beautiful space, and to have a conversation with someone who I think is like one of the most amazing activists, artists, and humans on the planet. And so at this point, I would like to invite Maria Lemon to the stage, and I'm going to ask her some questions about those early days. So some of you might not know that Maria moved to Denver a few years ago and works at the University of Colorado, Denver. That's what pays the bills. But, you know, she just can't stay away. So comes back frequently, thankfully. And we drug her back for this event. And so I guess I want to just ask you, what was queer Latinx life like in Austin in the 70s and 80s? Well, it wasn't Latinx, that's for sure. They're laughing. (laughs) I would have to say that by the mid-80s, there was a pull to figure out ways to be in community with each other. And Austin at the time, unbeknownst to us, had become somewhat of a nest for people who were organizing around various issues. And so from where I sat, the movement to free ourselves and our bodies as at that point, specifically gay and lesbian, you know, kind of narrow back then. Latinos had everything to do with our ability to connect with others. And I'm super grateful for that because it laid the standard for how it is that movements work in my mind. So involved when we were first organizing ALGO were the lawyers with the National Lawyers Guild. There were the people who were working with CISPES, a committee in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. It was the people working with the Venceremos Brigade, sending teams to Cuba every year, and definitely working around issues related to Palestine, prisoner rights, police brutality, all of these things we were all involved in while we were organizing ALGO. And so in my mind, I thought everybody did that. I was really shocked. I was really shocked. When we started founding the organization, these are people who were very present in our lives and are, I don't even want to call them allies because it's a buzzword, but aparte de eso, it's also, it doesn't quite capture the depth of the connection that we had with each other. Ride or die is probably a better term 
for the people who are still very much involved in our lives, maybe not as connected as we once were, but I know in a minute, if we needed to, we could call these people and they would be there. They would figure out a way to be there for us in a minute. And so it felt like a very busy, very creative, very violent is the only word I can think of time. Yeah. Did that answer your question? That's exactly, I think, what I want to hear. And, I, and I'm, I'm interested, too, in, like, how you go from being involved in all these different political movements. And this is also at a time when we don't have the sort of proliferation of the nonprofit industrial complex, as we might call it now, right? And so how is it, then, that all that comes together into this thing that we now know as ALGO? Like, who, who are the actors and, and what's the infrastructure? I would say that within the group of people who decided that we were going to come together and do this thing, it included a very wide range of activists and thinkers and organizers. There were people who were very much involved in electoral politics. And there were people who were very much involved in working with unions. And there were people who were very much involved in getting the U.S. out of Honduras, for example. The Texas State Guard had been sent to Honduras to go ahead and wreak havoc on people's there. And so we were this broad spectrum of people with different perspectives and views. And I think each of those people held perspectives that were essential to the founding of the organization because it came together in this nice mole, so to speak. And everybody added their little bit of this and a little pinch of that. And it worked for whatever reason. And not just say that it was smooth. We were at each other's throats quite a bit. I remember, oh my God, I could tell you stories, girl. But we would argue. And there were big arguments among those of us who were much more invested in a form of political assimilation than others of us were, for example. And political and economic assimilation, because clearly there was a struggle and it was economic and we all needed to survive. And then there were those of us who were ready to go ahead and, you know, say, we're going to go ahead and bring the state down. Can you imagine the tension among people who were really good at tossing daggers, verbal daggers at each other? I have to say, looking back, it was very entertaining. We were smart and we got totally stupid with it. And we figured out how to hang in there with each other. And so that's how the organization came together. And fortunately for us, there was a woman who had money, who had purchased the building on 3rd in Congress. At that point, it was called the Grassroots Peace Building. And in that building, a lot of these activists who had been involved doing all kinds of work found homes. And so the very first office that Algo held was probably the size of this stage that we shared with another organization called Ebony Connection. Those are the very first offices we had there. So having the proximity of having Ebony Connection there, along with the Texas Civil Rights Project and the United Farm Workers and the American Friends Service Committee, all of that was part of that mole that came together. So, yeah. I want to transition a little bit and ask about, you know, the early 80s and when it became clear that there was something going on, there was maybe you didn't know a name for AIDS yet, but when did the community really see that this thing had to be addressed? There was not one moment that I can recall. Arnoldo might be able to know, but I think there were people who were very aware of what was happening nationally and politically within the Democratic Party, and they had their fingers on the pulse in many ways, in different ways. And when it became clear that this was going to be affecting us, we knew that we had to organize something. 
And so we applied for funding and we received it, you know, surprisingly from the U.S. Conference of Mayors, I believe was our first funding source. I have to cry. <laughs> One of our founders was a nurse. He was a nurse and he was a good friend. He was my housemate and he was the first, there were only two nurses willing to work with people who had AIDS at Brackenridge Hospital. And he was one of them. And so we got this sense. We knew, right? We knew what was happening, both as it related to health, but we also saw the political and the cultural devastation that came with that. Ramon, I found out later after he died himself of AIDS, he used to live just right up the street here on Tillery. He was my roommate at the time, and he would get in bed with these men who had been left alone and abandoned. And it was when everybody was wearing full protective gear and wasn't necessary. But at that point, you know, yeah, homophobia being what it is and the fear, he would get in bed with these men and hold them as they were dying when nobody else would touch them, you know. And so we had these different perspectives of people looking in and we started being in contact and in connection with ACT UP, you know, in other chapters. We had been a part of organizing statewide. Glue was a gay and lesbian, Hispanos Unidos, right? Yeah. And then we also got connected with Diego, which was a national gay Latino organization. And they were based primarily out of DC. There were brilliant minds at work who understood things that I could not even relate, but they got it. They figured it out. And so that is when we realized we had to do something and we had to organize ourselves. So, yeah. And so out of that became this project that y'all called Informe Cita. And so you had this little bit of money. I mean, I've looked in the archives. I've talked to you about this, but I'd love if you would just talk to us a little bit about some of the things you were doing to raise awareness and just kind of, I know it was live. We organized ourselves. Algo had already been organized as an organization. There were big events that were happening. And so we had a group of people who were coming together on the regular. And there was some education already going on, at least among ourselves, in partnership with Aid Services of Austin, even though we had big old fights with them. They didn't like it when we first got funded. Ugh, yeah. And we knew that we needed to figure out how to cast a wider protective net on the Latino Mexicano community in Austin because we knew what was going to happen. And so one of the very first things that we did, and remember that these are people who were used to organizing political campaigns. And so what do campaigns do? They block walk. And so we organized this massive day of block walking one day. And it was amazing. We put our logo out there. And oh, my God, the very first logo that was selected, I feel, you know, as a mistake, although the people who fought with me about that are now dead. So my story wins. It was this very conservative Christian who picked this very gross design. And for whatever reason, the organization decided I was voted down. We didn't understand consensus building then. So I was voted down and they selected this logo that went up on a billboard here on 7th Street. And it was very generic. And I hated that the money went to this person who was out lobbying against our own interests as a gay organization. But anyway, so we did that and then we block walked and there was no hotline available then. There was nothing like that. And so what we did is when we block walked, we knew that we needed to set up some kind of system for people to call if they had questions that would be in Spanish. And this was, I don't even think the health department had that kind of education going on yet. So we had an answering machine, an old school answering machine. And that first weekend that we did all that work, somebody called me, I guess it was on a Sunday morning after we blocked walk Saturday. 
and asked if I'd call the number 472-2001. We still have the number. And apparently the machine, somebody left a really long detailed message asking very explicit questions about transmission that really didn't need to be asked for almost an hour on the tape. And so whenever anybody called, that's the recording that they got. (laughs) So there was quite a bit of education happening for anybody who called. And after that, we try to make sure that, you know, there were times when people could answer calls. And that was our first attempt, working in collaboration with Aid Services of Austin, arguing about what people needed and going toe-to-toe with folks. And I would say, hopefully now, they would look back, and some of them I still know, and they would say, yeah, it was hard, but here we are. I mean, obviously the need for Spanish language material was key, but at the time, I mean, what were the kind of unique things that were facing the Latino community and that made some of these conflicts with these, I assume, white-led organizations? I mean, I can't get in their heads, you know? I mean, cada cabeza es un mundo, you know, that's true, and that's a world I do not know. <laughs> I couldn't understand how they, in my mind, it made absolute sense that Ebony Connections should be funded to do work very specifically. We tried to explain that we, as Angela Davis once said, I'll never forget this, I want it tattooed on me, We separate not to be separatist, but to do specific work. Because there are things that only we knew how to handle because we understood the context and we understood the challenges in people's lives only we could handle. So there was a radio station. It's no longer operational. Marcelo Tafoya just died recently. And he was the founder of that radio station. And one of the things that they would do is that they would announce, this was again back in the day, when there were immigration raids on the radio. You know, things like that. And that did not even enter the mind of people working at Aid Services of Austin. Because in their mind, they wanted to get all the resources, they could do it all and handle it all better, which I understand in some ways. And we know that doesn't work. And so it wasn't craven self-interest necessarily. They thought that they were doing the best that they could because they had already laid some groundwork for getting funding and figuring those kinds of institutional obstacles out. And so they felt that they could go ahead and do a better job of serving people. And they were blind in one eye. That's not my line. That's Rick Bragg, this author who I asked him about racism in the South. And he said, people seem to be getting along. And I said, well, that's not what I hear. And he said, well, that's what happens when you're blind in one eye. You know, they were blind in one eye and they couldn't tell. They were just so used to seeing out of that one eye. They didn't know they were blind. So when you think back to that time, what do you think was the greatest success that you had? So many thoughts. In the long run, you can look back and say, oh my God, I'm so glad that from a distance as we could, we participated with National ACT UP because the pressure ACT UP brought to bear made a huge difference. You know, it made a huge difference. So from that perspective, I can see that. And then from this other perspective, we didn't know it. I mean, we hoped uh, that Algoin as an organization would, you know, establish roots to hell and under Priscilla's leadership that happened, you know, Algo's got roots to hell now. And so I think that is a huge victory. And we lost so many people. It's hard to claim it as a victory, but there's A few people who just by a hair, just by a hair, made it to treatment and are still alive. You know, they're still alive. That is, in my mind personally, that's a huge victory. That's a huge victory. And it's still shocking to me, Karma, that so few people have the experience of helping people die. Because that was our life. You know, for so long it was our life. 
figuring out how to put the financial pieces together, how to put the emotional pieces together, how to hold ourselves together, you know, and it's so it's shocking to me. It's still shocking to me that my own siblings that are all older than me didn't know when my mother was dying, they didn't know what was going to happen. I was literally flabbergasted (laughs) and shocked, you know, and so I'm not one to say this made us stronger. No, we were strong, which is why we were able to figure shit out because we already had our act together because we'd been targeted for destruction in many ways. And still, that's very much the case. And we knew enough to build community. We knew enough to go ahead and grant each other grace when one of our allies or, you know, ride or dies fucked up. You know, we would say, Vato, don't say that. <laughs> you know, we knew to do that, you know. And because of that, we had this connection and this community. And here I am all these years later. And this is still the gold standard for what community looks like. And it's expanded and grown and the tentacles have spread all over the place, you know, like a nice fungi, just, you know grow in so yeah i know <laughs> a nice fun guy growing uh, yeah. Yeah. i want you all to join me in thanking mari and then we'll open Yay. up for questions yeah. if anyone had any questions or comments or want to say anything if anyone had stories they wanted to share i will hand you the mic so that you can be because we're recording for co-op too what made me do this book now I mean, I just think we can't be thinking about AIDS enough. It's like the kind of idea that AIDS is not over, right? And we often think it is. And of course, that article I mentioned earlier, the Stephen Thrasher, you know, in two years in the United States, more people have died from COVID than in 40 years that we've had a name for AIDS. So imagine what we've been living with for the last two years, living through two pandemics, right? But globally, so many of the life-saving drugs that people with healthcare have access to in the United States people still don't have access to globally. And so I think it's just important to be thinking about AIDS in a global context. And also, I I don't know, I'm at that age where it's time to also be bringing people like Maria back into, you know, my kind of realm, people who may not know her, introducing just, I don't know, building community. Yeah, so many years of milestones. I mean, you know, 40 years since we've had a name. But of course, we know AIDS existed longer potentially that far ago. I mean, Ted Curras said at least since the 60s, but there's others that say earlier. So does anyone else want to ask a question for Maria or make a... So I'm just going to repeat that real quick. So your favorite memory of the really horrible time of supporting people in their worst hours. What's your favorite? A few short ones. Joseph Vasquez was in the hospital. He was very sick. And still, you know, talking, he, he hadn't slipped into a coma or anything like that. And he was one of the founders of Algo Informecida. And an intern came in and very rushed, took care of him, threw a few questions at him. And then Joseph answered, trying to connect with this doctor or would-be doctor. And the doctor left right away, just in this flurry of self-importance. And Joseph put his hands on his pearls and whispered while we were sitting in the room with him, he whispered, thank you, doctor. That was so hilarious. <laughs> that was hilarious. You should have been there. And I think the other thing was when Ramon was dying and Ramon was very active. He'd been to Cuba. He went to Palestine. He used to be a nurse on the eighth floor, which was the eighth floor at the old Brackenridge on the west side. The east side was cardiac. 
the nurses on the west side of that wing asked him to not be placed on that floor because they couldn't stand the thought of taking care of him when he was dying. It was too hard on them emotionally. So they put him on the cardiac side. And the nurses knew him. And so they let us, in essence, take over the lobby. There was a lobby area on that floor. They let us park ourselves there. We had tamales. I mean, there were lots of people there over, I don't know, maybe three, four-day period until he died. And the warmth that they were able to surround us with was still stands out as a memory. Yeah. Well, maybe that's a nice note for us to conclude our evening together. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Really appreciate it.